Welcome to Now I See, eye-opening stories from the formerly faithful. I'm your host, Amber White, and here, me and my guests share our experiences in loving and leaving rigid faith systems. Together, we shine a light on the dark corners of these institutions and share the joys of rebuilding life on our own terms. I promise you'll leave inspired, even if you are a little teary-eyed. Hello, and welcome back to Now I See. I'm your host, Amber White, and I am so honored to have my friend Kelda Harrison as a guest on this episode. Kelda has a unique and powerful story that I just know you're going to be amazed by. You'll notice throughout the episode that we don't name the commune she grew up in, and we use very intentional language around it. Despite the quiet nature of the intentional community, they have a rather robust PR team that is often checking for mentions of themselves online. Kelda still has family living there that she wants to protect, so we ask that you please respect her wishes and not comment any guesses as to what it might be on any of the social media channels. A big theme of this episode is what it's like growing up as a woman in strict faith systems. I touch on this a bit in the first episode, but we get into it much more here. Many women who grew up like we did are taught that their entire existence is to be in service to men. Men are the authority. They're better than women. They're smarter than women. They're less emotional than women. And it is the woman's responsibility to look and behave in such a way that she keeps her man happy at all times. This leads to many women having deeply wounded senses of self, low self-worth, and it puts the burden of responsibility for the relationship squarely on her shoulders. And as much as I wish this teaching vanished into thin air the second women decided to walk away from it, the truth is that it is deeply embedded in us, and it takes years to pull up all that bullshit by the root. And in the meantime, We're learning to date and choose partners, often for the first time, and we're not always choosing well. There's a psychological phenomenon called the familiarity principle that explains that when you are repeatedly exposed to a certain type of person, you tend to be attracted to that same type of person. There is incredible comfort in what is familiar, and when your entire life has been turned upside down, that comfort can feel like everything. I've unfortunately experienced this phenomenon for myself. The first person I dated when I left my faith and my home was not the best person for me. 
he put me in some terrible and frightening situations, and he really liked the fact that I was young and naive. That relationship ended with me getting a six-month restraining order in my junior year of college. In hindsight, I can see how very familiar he felt and how his presence was grounding when almost nothing else was. It was comfort I desperately needed, but didn't know how to ask for or where else to get it. Kelda has her own similar experience, which you'll hear about a bit towards the end of this episode. I'm grateful to say that the restraining order I got was very effective, and I had the help of my uncle and some incredible nonprofits through that process. I'm also in awe of the fact that a couple of years ago, he sent me the most beautiful apology letter I've ever received, thanking me for standing up to him because it helped him realize how much he needed to change. But Kelda's experience wasn't as easy, and it's ongoing. One in four women have experienced severe physical violence from an intimate partner here in the U.S., which means it's very likely that you or someone you know has, is, or will experience it. I know that I know some who do. The show notes for this episode feature links to several resources for domestic violence victims and their families. Most are national, but I included a few regional links to nonprofits that helped me and Kelda when we needed it. We hope that if you need them, you'll use them. Okay, without further ado, let's get into this fascinating story. Thank you for listening. Kelda, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It is a real treat to have you. I am excited for you to share your story. Thank you so much. Um, I feel really honored to be here and to share my story with everyone. So I'm very excited about this. Me too. I'm also excited to share with our guests that you have your own podcast. Yes. Yes. um, It's for anyone who wants to listen. It is Skin and Blister Pod. It's kind of a lifestyle comedy, but we also discuss serious things like mental health. And mm-hmm. and it's me and my sister who do it. And she lives in London and I live in North Carolina. It's really neat. I've enjoyed the few episodes I've gotten to listen to so far. Thank you. All right, Kelda. So as with every guest, I'm going to ask you to kind of set the scene for us. Like, how did you grow up and what was the belief system like? And just tell us a little bit about your experiences. I grew up in a intentional Christian commune, kind of a smaller community movement that not a ton of people have heard of or know about. And it has about 30 locations at this time worldwide with about like 3,000 members, just to give you an idea of the size of it. And each of the bigger communes have about two to 300 people living there. And then there's they also have smaller satellite ones. But I grew up in the bigger ones, both in England and in the United States in New York, not the city, but upstate. Some people don't realize 
there's more than New York City in New York, but <laughs> trust me, where we lived was very rural. Um, it was right right on the side of a mountain, kind of in like a little valley between two mountains in the Catskills. It was a very beautiful place. So I think like as far as my younger childhood in England, I have some memories of that. I moved to with my family to the United States when I was around 10 years old. But we had kind of like what would seem like an idyllic childhood. So the the communities themselves are on pretty large properties with a lot of woodlands and fields and a lot of them have like farms and animals. We grew up doing a lot of things like playing outside in the woods and hiking with our family and music played a really big role in our lifestyle as well. That involved musical instruments or um, singing as a community and also as family units. We had these songbooks of collections of songs for different seasons. Oh, wow. So I'd say probably every day we would sing at least, you know, 10 to 20 songs, depending on the day. So yeah, the childhood, I have to say, like, as a young child there, I was quite happy. Yeah. Spending a lot of time just playing with, you have built-in friends who are right there. You know, we all lived in several buildings on the property. So The one in England that I lived in had, it was on the property of an old boys boarding school. Okay. The main building was this old stone building with a courtyard. It was really beautiful. And each building was broken up into kind of family apartments. And each apartment would have a couple bedrooms, a small living room, and at least one bathroom usually. Usually the kitchen spaces were shared with several families. So it was like kitchenettes between the apartments. So this is like full commune style. Oh, yeah. People are sharing responsibilities and space. and. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So basically it was a very self-sufficient commune where it was community of goods. So we didn't have any of our own possessions or money or outside jobs or cars, you know, no computers in the house, no cell phones, none of that. It was very simple. Like our apartment, we were a family of seven children by the end of it. And we had an apartment usually with three or four bedrooms. All the boys would share a bedroom. All the girls would share one four boys in my family. And so it have bunk beds because they were quite small rooms. Mm-hmm. And then as far as like possessions went, we had a few things that were kind of our own, like as kids, like I had a, I think one doll and like one stuffed bear. Okay. And then a few things we shared with each other as kids, like Legos, but mostly, um, It was very much uh, kind of an anti-materialism type place. So Mm -hmm. we didn't really have any possessions. And those that we did have were supposed to be kind of owned by the church, even if you felt like it was yours. Interesting. If that makes sense. Yeah. And my parents joined as young adults with my older sister. They already had her. So a young family. And when they joined, they basically like pledged 
their lives to living on the commune and like gave all their whatever worldly possessions they had to the community as a whole. So they didn't hang on to any of that. So it's very much like kind of an Anabaptist, early Christian type vision that they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot to describe. So if you have questions, yeah. please let me know <laughs> what they are. For our listeners who did not grow up hearing the term Anabaptist as part of their church history education, mm-hmm. could you kind of explain a little bit about what that means just in you know a couple sentences? Okay, so basically how we learned it was the early Christians starting with, I guess, who I, I can't even remember who the apostle or (laughs) whoever it was that like started the communities but okay apparently like back right around after when jesus like you know zero Mm -hmm. 80 or whatever there were these communities that christians lived in Mm -hmm. where they shared everything in common and like didn't have any of their own possessions lived together in self-sufficient environments. Mm -hmm. And they believed in adult baptism, I believe. Mm -hmm. They also, I think, were, according to what we were taught, persecuted by the Romans at some point. They had to be in secret. So it was kind of that type of basis for, you know, the type of community that I lived in. I actually haven't done any research on it since my childhood. So I'm just paraphrasing (laughs) from what I was taught as a child. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. When I learned about Anabaptists, because I grew up independent fundamental Baptist, which Mm -hmm. is similar in its doctrine, but different in its practice. So we also did adult baptism and submersion baptism, which are huge Mm -hmm. tenets of Anabaptism. I think where we differed the most from Anabaptists would be that independent fundamental Baptists are quite a bit more materialistic in a lot of ways. And it's very much praised if you're successful or you you know, make a certain amount of money and that money then has power and influence in the community, whether or not they will ever admit to it. That is the mm-hmm. way it works. And yeah. so Anabaptists, like in my experience, are much more similar to like a Quaker, Mennonite, or Amish tradition yes. in the simplicity of living and living off the land. And which in some ways Yeah, like the Amish is often what I use to describe, you know, because most people know who the Amish are. So I'll say, you know, it's very similar to the Amish, mm-hmm. but even more of a insular community, if if that makes sense, even more shared mm-hmm. in common with a common leadership and everything. Yeah. So no one had a job outside of the community? No, no one did. We all worked on the property. So we had factories on okay. each property that would create products to sell like wooden products, high qualities, and then um, also like equipment for children and things like that. Okay. You know, used a lot in uh, Montessori schools and that type of thing. Yeah. So we had that to make, you know, the, the money for everyone. We all would either work there or we would work in the various parts of the community, like the mm-hmm. communal laundry, the kitchen, whatever it was, the the landscaping or the gardening. We grew most of our own food, Wow! including each commune kind of had a, 
different role with that. So like one of them would raise all the beef cattle and then one would raise chickens and it was kind of shared between the different locations. Okay. And then most of them had farmland where mostly the preteens and teens would take care of the gardening duties and all the duties like hauling wood to the furnaces and that type of thing. Okay. So everyone had a role that was very much an integral part of the whole and everyone was assigned that role. Okay. Kind of by the leadership and we had someone who was kind of a they were called a work distributor and they were the ones who decided like where do we need help who's going to okay. do it that type of thing. So they were the HR department. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. That was always my goal when I grew up. I wanted to be that person. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like one of the few positions of power you could have. <laughs> exactly. As a woman, definitely. I mean yeah. that cuz that often was it was there was a men's work distributor and a women's work distributor so as a woman that was definitely probably about the highest you could mm. go mhm mhm besides being the wife of one of the leaders I was going to say, I remember in listening to your first episode of your podcast, you mentioning when you were younger wanting to get married to like reduce your workload a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So as, you know, a young unattached person there, starting probably in, well, younger than high school, but like the duties they expected you to do with less supervision kind of started in ninth grade. And you would have extra work duties on top of the regular work day. So for us, that looked like we did go to public high school. Oh, okay. At the time, we went to private school up until ninth grade okay. on the property. Um, and then we went to public high school, which was really interesting because, yeah, we were wearing like these long dresses and we weren't allowed to shave our legs or wear makeup or any type of jewelry or anything. So we were kind of like the weirdo kids and everyone was like, who are these people? <laughs> and we kind of just stuck together and like didn't really make friends or play sports or anything. So we just went for the academics, then went home right away, went to work in the afternoon. And then in the evenings, we had duties, like once the workday was done for the people who are parents and the older people, we would go to our next duty, which would be like cleaning the school when all the kids had left or making the dinner for, we had a lot of communal meals. So for mm -hmm. the entire commune, you'd have to make the dinner and prepare it and everything. So there were mm -hmm. a lot of tasks that kind of got put on the people who weren't married with kids yet. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So once you had kids, you know, obviously you work more as a mother, but less in the communal aspect, if that right. makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So it sounds like they did a great job of making this world one of its own, right? Its own little world. Yes, definitely. Forcing an idyllic kind of mm, lifestyle. Yes, very Handmaid's Tale, but yeah. I mean, not that bad, obviously, but like, because <laughs> um, that gets really dark, but like very much supposed to be idyllic but obviously you can't have that without taking away free will right right so where were some of the areas where you started to see 
or maybe sort of to butt heads a little bit with not having that free will? Um, I think it really hit probably in ninth grade, maybe a bit before that, where I started to to question things and and to say like, why is it that my duties are different than the the boys my age? Like, why yes. do they get to play more sports than me and get to do the ride on the mowers and mow the lawns, which I wanted to do. Right. And I have to be folding people's underwear in the laundry area. Yeah. So these kind of things kind of started rubbing me wrong because I've always been someone for better or worse who has a very strong sense of fairness and justice. Yes. Which I think is important when you grow up in a family of seven, like in order to get what you need, you kind of have to have that very like strong sense of fighting for it. And yeah, at least that's kind of how I felt, especially with four brothers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in a sexist world. Yeah, it was it was something I noticed. And then, you know, going to public high school was like a massive thing for me because I saw all these other kids and not to say they seemed happy because no one's happy in high school really except right. for a certain few but they did get to decide like what their personal style was and mm. they got to date people we there was no way we were dating anyone right. that's a whole other thing we can talk about and they would kind of have their own interest in music and art and i just thought like that is what i want i just want more freedom to express myself mm. and Honestly, like, just look cute as well. Yeah, right. I was not a fan of <laughs> of the clothes we wore, which were similar to Amish clothes. Mm-hmm. That you know, all the women's clothes were handmade. We made them ourselves, but then the men's clothes, surprisingly, not were. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can hear my sarcasm there. Were jeans and t-shirts <laughs> or button shirts. So they got to dress like. Normally, not as cool as the kids in high school, obviously, but like, but they wouldn't like stand out in a crowd. Yeah, they didn't like, they barely stood out. And then we had to wear these crazy looking, like, Mm. different clothes from everyone else. And that's really, really hard when you're a teenager. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so interesting that, you know, for all of the different types of Christianity that you can see and, and that are out there and that I've I've spoken with even on this podcast with people who've been in these different sects of Christianity, all of them put really intense and strict rules on women yes. compared to men. That is fascinating to me. It is so weird. I mean, I... I think if you like look purely at the teachings of Jesus, none of that is that I remember is about putting strict rules on women. None of it. Yeah. (laughs) So I like it must have come from the church structure because and from societal structure at large Mm -hmm. as well. And then it just seems like a lot of churches now are still really far behind in their idea of equality between sexes. Yeah. Well, men have been running it and those rules work for them. Exactly. It works for what they want to believe and what they want to think about women and what they want to think about themselves. And that power structure is upheld by those, those stringent rules on women. Yes. And by women thinking that they're not as capable as, right? 
or that they're placed. There's no way like that entire structure would stay together if, for instance, women started wearing what they wanted or (laughs) or expressing (laughs) themselves in any kind of way besides like how many children you have and who you marry. I mean, it just wouldn't exist in the same way. It would fall apart. Yeah, I agree. I think even in women's ability to seek a divorce from someone who, you know, is not good to them or their children, that would start to crumble very quickly. (laughs) Very quickly. quickly. Like we, we were strictly no divorce, like divorce Mm -hmm. was growing up was considered like one of the biggest sins you could possibly commit. Mm -hmm. I mean, there wasn't even a word for divorce in our culture. Wow. We only knew of it from the outside world. So it didn't exist in our culture. No one got divorced. If people were having some insane amount of trouble in their marriage there, um, what they would do is the leaders would say, like, you can have a period of separation, but you'll never be divorced and remarry or anything. So, like, for instance, there have even been some extreme cases where someone went to prison in the outside world because of crimes they committed. Their wife will never be able to divorce them and get remarried or anything. She'll just be single for the rest of her her life there uh, and raising her kids by herself, you know, with the support of the community. But she won't get to have another partner unless that person dies. Wow. Yeah. So it's really extreme. That's very extreme. Are the community leaders in charge of selecting the people who get married and who don't? Or is that allowed to kind of happen on its own? So what I can speak to is the structure that I kind of knew of before I left, which was um, I left. Let's see. I'm 32 now. So 13 years ago. Me too. 13 years. Oh, cool. Congrats. (laughs) Me too. Um, (laughs) Thank you. So when I was there, the basics of what I understood about dating, as we say it, although that wasn't a term there, Mm -hmm. and marriage was you kind of, the man, right, if he had his eye on a woman there. And let me first start with you. In order to have that privilege of even thinking about marriage, you have to be a baptized member. So you have to have been committed to the commune itself. They did that through baptism. So they kind of put the membership of the commune in with the baptism into the church. Okay. And that means the lifelong commitment that you're making. So it served two purposes. And so once you're there, then the man can start looking at women, thinking about, I mean, obviously he's been doing it before that, but (laughs) we don't talk about that. Um, (laughs) Seeing who he is interested in, and then he can ask the leaders of his specific commune, which is usually a man and his wife, and or a couple men and their it's always married men, and it's one or two per commune. And he can ask them, like, I am interested in this woman. Um, can I start to get to know her? Is what they call that. And then the leadership will say yes or no. I don't know because I never went through this process Uh and it was kind of hush hush. So I don't know the details. I don't know if they do say no. I don't know if what goes on with that. But then as far as I know, once they say like, for instance, 
I was told that my brother wasn't able to let his current wife know that he liked her for a whole year. So the, oh, wow. the leader said, like, wait a year, then you can tell her, right? Interesting. So then what happens is, like, I think it's kind of a get-together with the woman's parents, the leaders, mm-hmm. the man, and they approach her and say, like, he's interested in you. And then they kind of start writing letters or okay. going for walks together and talking. But it's all very hidden. So, like, if you don't have your eye out really well, you wouldn't know that these people are dating. Until there's an engagement. So okay. once they get engaged, it becomes public knowledge. But before that, it's kept very secretive. Interesting. And only like the people in charge and probably the intelligent adults can observe it. But it's not supposed to be talked about. Huh. And I think that's with because it's such a small community. Mm-hmm. I think that's to prevent gossip. Right. And like, and public breakups and whatever it is. Cause if for some reason, like, they're not getting along or like it's not working out, like, they don't want a big public spectacle. So by the time you get, by the time you get to the engagement stage, it's basically a hundred percent. Like, those are rarely ever broken off. And the marriage happens very soon after that. Okay. And so, yeah, it's just a really interesting thing. As far as it's a purity culture. So of course. as far as I know, they would be very upset if you probably kissed before you were mm-hmm. married. Or I'm not sure if it's engaged or married. Um, as far as like sex, that's absolutely no till yep. you're married. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. if they were to find out that you did otherwise, you'd probably be expelled from the commune itself. Interesting. So yeah. you can there are things that can get you just booted out of yes. the community, baptized or not. I think what happened to a lot of like teenagers was, you know, they would be found like kissing in the woods and their entire family would be expelled for a period of time. The entire family. Yeah. So it was really oh. like so much pressure on you as a teenager because you knew that if you did something wrong, you could jeopardize your entire family. That's right? terrifying, especially when you don't have any other means to support yourself. Yes, it was awful. So like some wow. of my friends, their families left for a time, um, or I should say were expelled for a time um, because, you know, mostly because of the kids. Um, sometimes it was an issue with the parents, but It was often an issue with the teenage kids. They said that they were very, very poor when they were gone. And they were put in a tiny house in a bad neighborhood. Um, Mm. I'm just speaking from the experience of one of my friends right now. And their father, I think, worked it probably like some kind of construction or something because no one had like resumes or their own money or anything. So um, they had to do what they knew, which was, you know, it's easy to get into construction without much of a resume. And especially with the kind of work ethic that they had. Right. And so then you'd be supporting a family with, you know, up to seven, eight, nine kids um, on his one income. And then what my friend said is also that the commune said, you have to send back any extra money. 
Like you can't save it. So like you can pay for your expenses, but anything extra. And that's very minimal expenses, like food, clothing, minimally. Yeah. Yeah. And everything else you have to send back because like the goal is for the family once they've had a period, it's not supposed to be pleasant. Right. It's punishment. Because they want them to come back because, yeah, it's a punishment. And also because the parents are baptized members, like Mm. once you're a baptized member, they see it as a lifelong commitment. So they want you to come back at some point. Wow. That's a lot of control. Yes. Absolutely. So I'm so curious how a community this insular Mm -hmm. and this disconnected technologically, this small and secluded, like how do they get members that aren't born into the community? So that's a good question and also an interesting thing because it's been around for a hundred years now. Okay. Which is pretty long lived for that type of community. Mm-hmm. And so a lo- at first it was a lot of, you know, original members from back when they started, the leaders started it with a vision and all that. And then, but eventually, you know, you start getting to where it's like, oh, your only options are second cousins. And, you know, after a hundred years, basically <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that in the sixties and seventies, and 80s, a lot of people, like my parents, were really interested in intentional community living. Yeah. Kind of went along with like the counterculture hippie movement and all Mm -hmm. that. And so what they did is they kind of appealed to those types of people, which my parents were definitely into the counterculture and alternative Mm -hmm. living. and, And they would have them visit and they actually do quite good with their outreach programs. Okay. They they do have a pretty good online presence as far as like in a controlled way, right? PR way. And mm-hmm. then they also do invite outside reporters in in a very controlled environment as well. Like they they have someone who's kind of in charge of the reporter and goes around with them and shows them, you know, what they should be seeing and all that. So Yeah, I think a lot of their newer blood came from, you know, that kind of community movement of the 60s, 70s, 80s, into the 80s. And my parents were two of those people. And then now I think like, oh, also at that time, they kind of cannibalized a lot of smaller intentional communities like they would yeah it was really interesting they would send some mergers and acquisitions huh yes exactly (laughs) like so they would I don't know why I said cannibalize that was the wrong word Um, I think it kind of makes sense (laughs) but they would send like their members to live with you know that small community for a little while Or vice versa, they'd invite members from that community to come to them and then, you know, kind of try to work out a thing where they would merge into a bigger unit. And so they did that a lot at that time, too. And that's how they got a lot of their members. Now, more recently, they've been reaching out to like more international communities, like which are because the Western world now is not very religious. So it's kind of hard to appeal to, you know, anyone that you or I would 
know in the outside world who's not already part of like a big church that they're, you know, that they're stuck with for life. Right. Because it is a very challenging environment to go into where you're that disciplined, have that little personal freedom and all that. So, but there's still more of people in, in more international settings who that's more appealing for. So that's kind of where the direction they're headed in right now, I think. Okay. That's interesting. It's interesting though, because yeah, you think it's like they're getting to a point where you have to kind of start getting careful about who gets married to. <laughs> right. I mean, three or 400 people is not that many people and you're talking about a hundred years. But they do have the whole pool to pull from, right? So like yeah, that's true. they have the 3,000 members. Ah. So like they can move people from location to location um, to kind of fit needs. Okay. So there still is that kind of diversity of that many people in the pool. That's so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> you can be this small and this isolated, but then have locations all over the world that are in, you know, moving members around. That's such Isn't an that interesting, interesting thing. I feel like it's a very different place from like a lot of other places. Because mm-hmm. it's like this unique blend of like using modern technologies at like flight and uh, mm-hmm. the internet to attract members or to move members around. Um, and then also the same with the marketing for their businesses. They use very modern methods for that. But then also to be so like primitive kind of in their interior structure as well. Yeah. So it's that weird combination. Is I I haven't heard of anything quite like it. It's really unique in in my knowledge of organizations like that. Yeah, I haven't run into a ton of people who have really experienced anything that close to what I grew Mm -hmm. up with. I would say like, yeah, it's easier to relate to kind of like Mormons maybe and um, Mm -hmm. like Jehovah's Witnesses Mm -hmm. or like Hasidic Jewish communities, that type of thing. Okay. That makes sense. So interesting. So you leave when you're around 19, right? Mm -hmm. What brought you to that? Because your whole family seven siblings, you know? Yeah. I think like, so my oldest sister played a big role in kind of providing a bit of a vision starting point because she is uh, almost 10 years older than me. And she had left when she was, I think, 17 or 18. So when I was still really young, before we even moved to the United States, she had already gone off at the time she was 17 18 they did this thing they called a year away which i think people are probably more familiar with the amish version like from the popularized tv shows like breaking amish and all that Mm -hmm. but basically it was supposed to be you went somewhere kind of structured so to like a christian mission that we were partnered with or some type of other community or to a Christian family who needed help, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, and you would work there for a year and then kind of come back or not. But the goal was for you to get some outside experience and want to come back, right? And become okay. a member. So that it kind of felt more like free will. And because they would never say like they don't believe in free will. Like they right. wouldn't say that. They want to at least 
put on the show that like they really believe that as an adult you choose to be there right, right. so right now obviously like leaving is incredibly traumatizing and difficult so yeah when you kind of hold a gun to someone's head and say <laughs> you're gonna stay here or else you'll never talk to your family again I mean that it's up to you whether you see that as free will or not. It's free will with threats. <laughs> with with conditions, right. yeah. So basically, I saw my sister leave. She went to India, worked at like a ashram type um, mission place. Then she came back for like a summer and then left and went to university and kind of decided to stay out of the commune. But she was on pretty good terms with my parents and the commune in general. She was still a Christian and um, still like doing a lot of charity work. And she was allowed to come back and visit us occasionally. And it was just like very cool to see her, you know, traveling and having all these adventures. And she had always been incredibly cool to me because she was 10 years yeah. older. Yeah. So I just kind of thought like, oh, like her life seems amazing. Um, mm. Because like we didn't really get to do stuff like decide where to travel or decide our career path. So all that was really appealing to me as a teenager, especially. And then also kind of going to public school and seeing the outside world and being finding it really appealing was another kind of thing that pushed me. So I I graduated high school when I was 17. I graduated in three years um, wow. instead of four because you could do that in my high school. And I spent a year working in the communal laundromat, um, which wasn't very glamorous for me. <laughs> and then, you know, it was kind of backbreaking and I worked with a bunch of old ladies and I think they thought like this will be good for her because mm -hmm. it will kind of like keep her humble and like, you know, sheltered with these old ladies. Oh, but instead opposite. it kind of, I was <laughs> incredibly bored and uh -huh. restless and my hormones were raging and I had no <laughs> outlet for that. Then after that, they sent me to this other commune location oh. in another part of the state of New York. And I lived there as like a single person because my family stayed in the other one. And I was kind of like assisting this family with their young kids and then doing all of the work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like I was tired all the time, just exhausted you know, to attending all the communal gatherings and just, it was quite, it wasn't appealing. I, I noticed a lot of sexism, especially there, because oh, I didn't yeah. kind of have the protection of my family and my parents who were very loving and, mm. you know, wholesome. And yeah. this was more of like an atmosphere of social climbing and there were a lot of like farm boys there who were extremely obnoxious with their like forced <laughs> masculinity. <laughs> oh, I can see it now. They really had something to prove because they were all mm. there trying to become members and get wives mm. and all of that. Um, and then as someone who was 
not a baptized member of the commune because kind of around the age I was at that time, which was 18 is when you start, they, you start getting the pressure on you to like decide whether you're getting baptized and all that. Okay. And as someone who wasn't, I had zero status. I was basically oh. an unattached single woman with no family status, right? Cause I've left my family no status of being a member. So I'm basically the person that zero people respect. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. And I felt that very, very strongly. I think I've always been like pretty sensitive to like energies and like not to sound woo woo, but to like <laughs> vibes around me. Right. You and like, woo woo here. It's okay. Yeah. Like, it just felt very, very hostile. Um, it felt like a lot of the wives hated me because I wouldn't get baptized. So it was kind of like a symbol of temptation or something oh, to their husbands. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the young men ignored me because I wasn't a prospect. Right. So I just felt like really used and like, like I felt like it was a very hostile environment. Um, yeah. And just you that were there to be I, a workhorse. That's I was a workhorse. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and on top of that, you know, I, yeah, I just had like raging hormones and I honestly just wanted to experience the life of a regular teenager at that point. I wanted yeah. to experiment. I wanted to have adventures. Yeah. And so that's kind of when I said like, I can't, I started feeling as if I was losing my mind. I felt like all these eyes closing in on me, like pressure, pressure, pressure. You have to join. You have to join. You have to get baptized. Declare yourself for the life and for Jesus. And mm. all these women just being like mean to me, like just looking down on me and saying like mean things and talking behind my back. And huh. all these men just treating me like, a commodity. And I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I was like, no. I called my dad after about a year there. And I said, dad, I'm going crazy. Like you have to get me out of here yeah. right now. Yeah. And so, because I just couldn't handle the pressure. He, to his credit, um, found me somewhere to go within like two weeks. So he called my sister had gotten married a few years prior and him and my mom had been gotten permission to travel to her wedding in London, um, which may or may not happen with people, but she had kind of been a bit of a model of like, you know, Christianity, married her Christian husband, worked mm. for a charity, all that. So they were allowed to travel to her wedding and at her wedding, they met her husband's brother who had a wife and kids here in North Carolina. Okay. So my dad called them. He had met them once. <laughs> and he said, can my daughter come and stay with you? Oh, and like kind wow. of hope to get her started in the world. Like, can she help nanny your kids? And to their immense credit, they said yes. They That's had never amazing. met me. But they knew my older sister and they knew like our kind of wholesome background. Yeah. They said, yeah, we could use help this summer with the kids because they weren't in camp or anything and both of them weren't working. So I was bought a plane ticket 
and I was handed five hundred dollars in cash, oh, and wow. off I went in two <laughs> within two weeks. World. <laughs> yeah, and I just remember like going through. I had a connecting flight in Detroit, and you know that like long tunnel in the Detroit airport where there's all the like cool lights. Yeah, anyone who's been there will know. And I was just walking through there with like my weird like baggy dress on, just feeling like so lost and overwhelmed, Mm. but also really excited because I was about to start like an entirely new thing, which I had never experienced before. Yeah. So like people say like a lot of people that know me now think like, oh my gosh, how did, how were you brave enough to leave? But for me, it was like, I was so bored. I had like, (laughs) (laughs) it was such a structured, boring life. And also like I was just losing it. I was losing my sanity and I, I had no other choice. It wasn't about being brave. It was just, I have to do this. Right. So there's something in there that just, you know, it tells you, you gotta go. It's time. And it was the tenacity of youth as well. Like, (laughs) you know, when you're that young, you don't really think about like consequences or Mm -mm. like the hard parts. You just think like, this is exciting. Yeah. Well, if you do, you might not do it. So in some ways, it's a good thing, right? To not. It's be a really good thing. <laughs> if really I'd known believe. all the hardships I'd be facing, <laughs> I don't know, like what I would have right. done. I agree. I agree. You know, I yeah. when I left, I remember being very hopeful. I'm very excited. I'm going to go get an education. I'm going to go live my own life, my own terms. Mm. It's very difficult. It's so difficult. Oh my gosh! You really can't overstate how hard and confusing it is. Yeah. When you lose your entire social structure mm-hmm. at the blink of an eye and you have to learn how to be in this new world, like essentially I felt like I was an alien landing from another planet. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that feeling too. Like, I don't, yeah. I'm not like any of these people. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You feel like an outsider, right? Mm-hmm. Or that there, when we were growing up, we always called people who weren't from our commune outsiders. Like that's literally what we called them. Interesting. And so it was kind of, we we also grew up with this very strong sense of moral superiority. Oh yeah. We were the way we were the only way everyone else, the other 8 billion people in the world were doing, were doing it wrong. We were the only ones doing it right. And so you kind of think you go into the world with this like incredible arrogance, this incredible naivety and this incredible, like, I don't know, kind of sense of adventure too, because at that point you don't have anything to lose really. Can't get worse. Yeah. And it can't get like more, you know, you start from scratch, you're a newborn baby. Yeah, you really are. You really are. I mean, just I remember trying to make friends and being like, how do you do this? Yeah, that was rough. It's rough. Like, who knows what they think or like or believe in when you when you grow up in a community that is that isolated. Yeah. And you all believe the same thing. And everyone I was homeschooled and I went to church with people who believe the same thing and mm-hmm. that they were my friends. Like it was kind of like ingrained friendship. We were all we had and we knew we believed the same things, but 
out in the real world, <laughs> where the world is very big and there are lots of types of yeah. people, you could come up against somebody who's had a completely different life experience than you. And it's much, you have to like relearn, you have to learn for the first time mm-hmm. how to relate to somebody who is completely different. And that is, it's very cool, first of all. Like it's, yes. it fuels that excitement part, right? Like it, yes. It continues that feeling, but it's also like, how do you navigate this? And I put my foot in my mouth so many damn times. I don't even know. <laughs> oh my gosh. When I think back to the person I was, oh. I cringe. Like I, it's <laughs> so hard to think about. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what I was doing. Like, and I came from a place where you work really hard, but then everything's provided, right? So, mm-hmm. like, you kind of just assume that your needs will be taken care of. So, when you leave that environment, if someone is kind to you and decides to, like, give you a ride because you don't know how to drive oh, because yeah. you're a young woman, you just take that for granted. You barely say thank you because that's what people do for each other. Right. One person does one thing, one person does another role. You, it's and not like someone's doing you a favor. You're kind of part of this giant mechanism that just has different tasks. Mm-hmm. So the kind of the idea of like asking for favors and gratitude and how to show gratitude and how to interact on a social level of like give and take, that I had no clue what I was doing. No clue. So this poor family that I land up with, right? Like, I mean, luckily I was providing childcare services, so Mm -hmm. I was giving some, but I was staying there for free and I just took everything they did for me for granted. So we're used to, yeah. Yeah. And like, they were luckily very patient and kind. And, um, but I would say I only lasted there like a few months because I started getting kind of a bit wild and crazy at that point. So it happened. They were like, we have three kids. We're living this nice, wholesome life. Like Mm -hmm. you kind of need to move on. (laughs) And at the time I was like really awkward and angry and just like didn't know what to do. But looking back, oh my gosh, like they were saints for putting up with me. <laughs> I'm still friends with them, actually. Oh, that's great. And they're amazing family friends. Yeah. I love that. So we managed to salvage that, but it was a bit rough for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that angry wild phase mm-hmm. is such an important phase, but boy, is it difficult. The poor people uh, around you. Oh, is just- my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of collateral damage going oh, on. Oh, God, you really are just Godzilla, just wrecking the city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I ended uh, up like moving in with a roommate. I had to figure out all this stuff. Back then, like Craigslist was a big thing where you got mm-hmm. everything. So, like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't have a driver's license. Um, I didn't know how to drive. So I got a moped. and so I could get to and from work because you know Asheville like you can't take public transportation here it's no it doesn't go anywhere like and also it's awful like and the timing is terrible yeah so at first I used a bike then I got a moped and I was just like roaring around on my little moped (laughs) like running into trouble (laughs) um like and you know the type of people that ride mopeds here are like all alcoholics or um 
like old, you know, like, or people that just can't like, it's, it's kind of a different world, like in, in a place where there's not good public transportation, as opposed to a big city when you don't drive, like it really separates you socially from other people. It does in a really terrible way. Which is so difficult. Mm -hmm. So, but I was like, I had never been taught to drive and no one really thinks about this, but when you're in high school, your parents, you know, if if your parents are supportive, they teach you to drive and then you're on their insurance for a while. If you go straight out and like, say, learn to drive at 20 years old, mm-hmm. your insurance is going to cost $300 a month. And Ooh. that is a massive expense. That Not is. to mention you have no saved money to buy a car. So you're making these giant car payments at you have no credit. So at like 20% interest, like it's all really, really difficult. And like, I was working in the service industry during 2010, which was, as we all know, a financial crisis. So wages were like $7 an hour. Yeah. Um, And you met actually. Yeah. 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 And you're lucky to get a job at that time Mm -hmm. for $7 an hour. So this is all like a crazy, difficult world to be in. And they had kind of told me like, don't talk to other people that have left. Like you need to do this on your own. Oh, well, that's, that's so, a terrible advice. <laughs> or us, or us, like, right. So the minute yeah. I leave, like no family, no friends, nothing. No community. Nobody no understands. community. And you come from this like rich, rich community, right. And into this cold, hard world. And it's just like, it's so awful in so many <laughs> it ways. It is awful. Yeah. It is awful. And then it gets a better a little bit at a time. And it's a always little bit at a time. Better in that you have your freedom, right? Like that feeling for yes, me the freedom was always there. Was amazing. Right. And I was I was getting to decide what I believed in, which I think was also very exciting. And then I was going to college at that at that time too. So mm-hmm. I was learning and that was fueling me as well. And then a yeah. at a time, you make a friend, you make another friend, mm-hmm. you start you to learn settle into your way, right, yeah. into the way the world works. And then once you start adjusting a little bit, you can kind of stabilize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes a while, but once you stabilize, it's like, okay, I think I can figure this out. And then you just kind of start rolling. For me, that took a while. <laughs> me too. It took me a while. I'm not yeah. saying that happens overnight. It takes a while. Well, I think one of my biggest, I don't really have regrets, but if if I could see someone who is me at a younger time, I would tell them, go to college if you can, right? Because you'll yeah. make the right connections there um, mm. and you'll like get, you know, at least a decent job out of it, hopefully. Although, you know, that's so, so these days. But I think for me, what kind of made it a lot harder than it had to be was kind of getting in with the wrong people, right? So Mm -hmm. not knowing who was a good person to hang out with. Mm -hmm. And like, the, the man I met at very soon after I left the commune, I kind of met him like honestly hanging out downtown, like on the street, like uh-huh. semi-homeless people and not nothing like I'm not trying to sound like elitist or anything, but like mm-hmm. there's a reason people are there. Right. Mm-hmm. And 
I just thought that was like so glamorous, <laughs> like this like dark <laughs> underbelly world. Right. Like I was like, this is so cool. Like everything, it was kind of the opposite of like this clean, like farmy, wholesome world I had been raised in. Yeah. And I was just so, so attracted to it. And so I think that's what like really held me back for quite a long time was like I got into a relationship with him very fast. Yeah. I remember him. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Oh, um, no, no, no. You don't <laughs> apologize. He was just like not very nice to you. Oh, you know not, what I mean? I remember like, that very well. The opposite. Like, yeah. The, the, the worst. Opposite. Mm. I just so had the bad luck of having my first real relationship with someone who was incredibly abusive and yeah. incredibly controlling. And mm. I was primed for that. You were. I was primed to be controlled by men. So yeah, I fell very, were. very quickly and easily into that. Yeah. I'm sorry that was your experience. Thank you. I, I'm still recovering because yeah. I did have a child with him. Yeah. A beautiful child. He's wonderful. an amazing child. Yeah. But that is a very good way to hitch yourself to that cart for 18 years, which sure is very is. unfortunate. I will never regret my child. He is amazing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely amazing child. So it was all, it's all worth it just, you know, because I have him, he's amazing. But yeah, yeah it was really, really hard. And I was in that situation for like six years of just extreme abuse in every sense of the word. Yeah. And I was very, very stuck in it because I didn't have a support system. Right. That was very strong outside of that. So that was my kind of like fucked up family, you know, yeah. <laughs> my right. fucked up support system was like that one very messed up individual who kind of right. made my life a living hell. So that was like pretty, pretty hard. And yeah, I was kind of stuck in that for a while. Yeah. You're not alone in that. Yeah. And so I hope, I hope I, I hear you saying things like, I'm sorry that you met this person, you know, you were primed to be in that and you're not the only mm -hmm. person to leave a community and find themselves in that same situation. It's learning. It's what we've been taught. Like my first yeah. relationship outside was also with somebody who was not a great person. I ended up getting a restraining order. Yeah, me too. And yeah. I was lucky to have a little bit of family. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that too. Without anything, like that's even harder. And so, I don't know. I just want you to feel like it's hard because <laughs> you're looking at it and you're going, I made this choice, right? And in some mm -hmm. ways, that's not untrue. But it's also such a natural outcome of what you were taught your entire life. Yes. And where you were at the time. And so, it never makes it okay for someone to treat you that way. And yeah. it never makes their actions normal. And it doesn't make you bad. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. It, it is hard. Like, I, I'm sure you have a similar experience. Where, while being primed to kind of be controlled by a partner, by a man, because you see them as authority, you're right. also primed to believe that everything is your fault, right? So like, everything. it's a very, very hard, like, kind of dichotomy to live with in your brain because like I was always saw myself as like fiercely independent and responsible for all my mm. actions. So I went through this very long phase of like self blame and not being able to ask for help when I really needed yeah. it. 
Um, And just this fierce, like, I'm okay. Don't talk to me about this. I know what I'm doing. Mm. Because I felt like I wasn't a full human if I didn't have that attitude. Right. And so, like, while I was in this extremely abusive partnership, I, like, was not able to really reach out for any resources either, even if I had had more of a strong support network because I saw it as between me and him, like it stays Mm -hmm. in there. Like no one, no one hears about this. Like we don't talk about it. I got myself into this mess. Now I need to figure it out type thing. And it was so hard because like, I didn't know to ask like, Hey, like I need support with this. How do I do this? Yeah. Yeah. How do I get out of this? It's interesting to me that that's how relationships were treated in your community. Mm -hmm. Extremely privately. Private. Yeah. Because like, if you think about it, I didn't really see my parents model any kind of conflict resolution or self-care or anything like that. Yeah. Um, It was always just what I saw modeled was my mom, you know, ultimately always submitted to my dad, Mm -hmm. even if he was wrong. Yeah. And she had like this outsized respect and, you know, he had this aura around him of, and I don't think that's even his fault. It's the fault of the structure of the right, he was society he was in. Yeah. yeah. And so like we saw him kind of as like some kind of God who was like untouchable. Mm. Right. And then if we heard him yelling, it was always like him yelling, but not my mom. She was right. always quiet and submissive. And and they never talked to us kids about how do you like resolve conflicts with your partner? How do you reach out for help outside of that when you need it? Right. It was just so hushed up. Like all those conversations were had within like the church um, and mm-hmm. like the baptized members or within their bedroom, like talking to each other quietly mm-hmm. or sometimes my dad loudly. But yeah. it was never like, hey, kids, like this is something we should talk about or like right with my son, if I like mess up constantly, right with him. So I'll apologize. I'll say like, Hey, I raised my voice yesterday and I realized now that wasn't appropriate and I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I got so frustrated and like, there just wasn't any of that modeled. So like we didn't have any realistic view of how to have a relationship. Right. But look at you doing it. Yeah, I mean, incredible. That speaks to like five years of therapy. (laughs) I know therapy is the best. (laughs) It's the best. Love therapy. And to surrounding myself with like help healthy people and yeah, reading books on psychology and all this self healing work that I honestly find really interesting and exciting. So yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of like hacking yourself to be like the the best human you possibly can be is kind of my whole goal (laughs) in life. (laughs) I love that. And you own a business too, which is amazing. Yeah. That was like a really hard step for me to take mentally, not physically. Like I always had it in me, but as far as having the confidence, like you can do this because us women who are born in churches like this, we were not ingrained with any kind of self-confidence. So we None. had to build that all as adults, which yes. that is a hard task. <laughs> I'm still doing it. Me too. I'm 34. I'm still working on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's neat to see it happen a little at a time. 
And it is, yeah. We just recently reconnected after what, like 10 years almost? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess we were always Facebook acquaintances, but yeah, which is cool because that's how we reconnected. I know it's super cool, but I just remembering you from 10 years ago and remembering me from 10 years ago where we were and then seeing us now having this conversation. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's we're totally really different good. people. Yes, we are so different. Yeah, I swear I've had like I'm sure you had this too, like multiple stages of of personhood. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is really interesting because a lot of people, because they grew up fairly quote normally, which we know there's no like actual normal, but right. you right. know, like a little more traditionally in a Western sense they kind of stay similar through their adulthood. Whereas Mm -hmm. I've been like every year, I'm like a totally new person. (laughs) It's really fascinating. And that goes along with like, I find new styles of like what I wear. mm -hmm. I find new like interests every year. It's kind Mm -hmm. of exciting, but also it's pretty tiring as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Especially as I get older, I'm like, how long can I keep reinventing myself? (laughs) Exactly. But I think like, part of coming from that type of background where, you know, everything is so controlled and it feels to a lot of people who didn't grow up like that feels exotic. Mm -hmm. To me, it felt incredibly boring and plain, right? Like I'm not allowed to explore anything. Like I'm just who I'm told to be. So coming from that, like the joy of discovering my own interests, my own creativities and my own lifestyle and beliefs, that is amazing. It makes it so much more exciting. I'm so happy for you. Because of where I came from. So yeah, I'm really Mm -hmm. in like a, I think like a renaissance period. Oh, I love that Also, shout out to your 30s. They're amazing. Oh, (laughs) yeah. I keep hearing the 40s are even better and I'm like, all right, let's do this. (laughs) I'm good with it. I'm going to enjoy every year. The 20s were rough. Those were oh, those yeah. were hard. I'm Brutal. sorry, guys, if you're in your 20s, it's rough. <laughs> it's hard even if you don't grow up in a restrictive religious environment. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I'm Kelda. I am just so thrilled to see you thriving and see you happy and to know that you're just working on yourself and living the life you want to live and you're providing this incredible life for your son. I just think it's beautiful. And congratulations to you on making that happen. You You did it. And right back at you. Like it's amazing you're doing this project. I was so excited when I saw it on Facebook and I think it's going to help a lot of people. Oh, I hope so. That's the goal, right? Yeah. (sighs) Okay. We have come to the part in the podcast. It's one of my favorite things is to get to ask these last two questions. So there are two things that I ask every guest. And the first is, what is something you see clearly now that you didn't see before when you were the most immersed in your religion? All right. Yeah, I kind of prepared for this. I'm really excited about it. (gasps) Oh, I love it. I am too. So one of the big things that I see a lot more clearly now, especially like very recently, is that I used to kind of think everything in the world was very black and white. And I had like this very inflexible worldview. Things were good or evil, holy or bad. You know, Mm -hmm. people had either pure intentions or bad intentions. But I never saw any like shades of 
nuance or or shades of gray in the world. It was yeah. I had this very very inflexible thinking, and that definitely led me like to have some very difficult times figuring stuff out because mm. when you assume a person can only be good or bad, if they're in between, it's very confusing. Yeah, <laughs> and you don't yeah. realize that. Actually, most things are incredibly nuanced and there's good and bad sides to most things, including Mm -hmm. our childhoods. And so that's something I've come to see really clearly. And I'm very happy that as an adult, I have a very flexible mindset and I'm very open to learning and growing because there's always more to kind of figure out and learn. And it's cool not to be stuck in like, some weird tribal think pattern and to instead be able to, you know, see all sides of things and, and see all the shades of gray and the nuances. It's a beautiful thing. It's a gift. Yeah, it is. Oh, and I had a couple other things. If you, sorry, I got really excited about this. No, please. Another thing I saw, I see really clearly now is that um, I grew up thinking spirituality, faith, and belief were things that were very much structured by an outside structure, like a church or your parents, Mm. that you kind of were just taught these very like firm, they were taught as facts about like, what to believe and like, what is in the world. And what I've come to realize is that any type of like, spirituality, or ideas or um, beliefs that I have personally are incredibly personal and based Mm. off of my own experience and things that I see to be true in the world. And they are very personal, right? And it's not some weird, like structural thing that I learned, you know, as a kid or as an adult, but it's like very much something that I find within myself and that I'm very connected to. And I don't even have any religion or spiritual practice per se, Mm -hmm. but I am still like open and learning more about myself and, and my own like small quiet voice in the back of my head (laughs) that kind of tells me how to live my life. And so that's been a really cool thing to discover yeah, for me as well. Definitely. Your own personal ethic system. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, those are some things that have become really clear to me. That's beautiful. I love that. And so our last question, Kelda, as much as I, it pains me to wrap this up because I have enjoyed <laughs> this so much. So have I. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad. The final question is, what have been some of your greatest moments of joy in rebuilding your life post-faithfulness? I love this. There are so, so many. So I'm Mm going to have to paraphrase. (laughs) But (laughs) I found like each year of my life gets better and better. Because, you know, if you start in nothing, there's a long way to go up. And that's really Mm -hmm. cool. cool. And so one of my favorite things is building real relationships with people Mm. um, and real friendships based on mutual respect and values um, instead of on any kind of preconceived structure. Yes. That's been really amazing to Mm. find those true relationships and the chosen family around me and just 
to be vulnerable with people and to build connections in that way feels amazing. And I've, I've found some really rich friendships and chosen family that way. And then also, I love to learn to play more as an adult, <laughs> like do yeah. things that are fun, right? Because life is too short not to do that. And I missed out yes. a lot on that as a kid. So now I have to make up for lost time. So I support it. Yes, it's the best. <laughs> so things I've been doing recently um, are snowboarding. I learned that last yes. year. Yes. Broke my wrist, but <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. And also I've been doing jujitsu, which is basically oh. like grappling for anyone who doesn't know. It. And that's been yeah. incredibly fun for me because I'm very competitive. And it's a cool way to get that out of me <laughs> in a positive cool. workout sort of way. So yeah. that's been super fun. And then my last thing is personal freedom. Mm. I love being able to choose my life, my career, the way I raise my son, my beliefs, even what I wear and what I eat on a daily basis. That is a very, very joyful thing for me. So that's yep. the biggest thing probably. Not to be taken for granted. No, no, it's really not. It's interesting to me that when I did my episode and my friend asked me that question, that was my biggest central thing really of joy was personal freedom. Yeah. It's it's it feels like everything to me. Mm -hmm. Right. Me that, too. To have that. It's so important. It really is. It is. And I'm so glad that you're getting to experience it and yes. that you have found so much joy in your life. It's beautiful. Yes. Life is a beautiful thing. And when you come from a dark place, it's all the more beautiful because it's so so good. <laughs> really is. Well, Kelda, thank you again so much for sharing your story and for being here. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for tuning in to this episode and being on this journey with me. You can find resources and links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, and review, and follow along on social media to help us grow. Now I See is independently funded by me. If you'd like to help support the show, you can donate directly or purchase a merch item on the website. Music for this episode was made by Alana Sabatini, a former faithful and talented musician. And finally, this podcast is made possible by the incredible team at Softer Sounds, a feminist podcast studio for entrepreneurs and creatives, providing technical skill with tender support. <laughs>